Hey there, PDX Real Estate Podcast listeners. Before we get into today's show, I've got a real quick announcement for you, and that is that my company, TTM, is still looking to buy fixers and teardowns all over the Portland metro area, even in this post-corona economy that we have going on right now. So if you have anything that comes across your desk that may not fit the retail market, we'd love to hear from you. All you got to do is go to our website, which is ttmdevelopmentcompany.com. There's a contact us tab, fill out the information, submit it to us, and we'll give you a call. Or if you'd like to, just call us at the office, 503-224-6200, and we'd love to chat with you about the property. Now, let's get into the show. This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, everybody, welcome to the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We have had technical difficulties today. We were going to stream this live in Masters, but we said we never have technical difficulties when we first (laughs) hopped on, and lo and behold, we did. So you can thank (laughs) the Ducks for this one, but uh, without further ado, I first want to welcome my co-host of the show. What's happening, Joe? What's happening, Steve? Hey. Hey, guys. Hi, Emily. Morning. Hi. Emily Hetrick, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. This is like old school. This reminds me of the old days, which wasn't that long ago where... (laughs) <laughs> where uh, we were, you know, we, we, we just did it off offline and, and then later, uh, later put it everywhere. So yep. I guess we can screw up and clean it up though, if we need to. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We Pressure, have editing right? capabilities. Just <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, guys. Glad to be we're, here. We're excited to have you, Emily. Emily Hattrick, welcome to the show. Um, I've gotten to know Emily um, of several, oh, several trips, Zillow trips, actually, to be, to be specific. Um, She's one of those agents where here in Portland, I, we don't see each other too often, but, um, but, but man, when we go to San Antonio or Southern California and we'll see each other and we'll, we'll grab the happy hour together and, and there'll be a group of us from Portland that all kind of stick together. The other person like that is Sarita Dua. I, I don't see her too often in town, but um, I, I've gotten to know her pretty well. And on those events, and she's on our show next week. We're excited to have her. Oh, awesome. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. Just to clarify, Steve, then, you know, Emily from Zillow stuff? Yes, yes. Emily's, uh, she's she's pretty in with Zillow as am I. Um, We have the same rep, in fact. Don't you have Austin Drury? I do. As a matter of fact, he's been trying to call me all morning. (laughs) I'm like, no. I like him. He's a good guy. He gets he gets stuff done, and he knows the yes. stuff. He's he's just a he's a good quality person. I think Sarita has him as well. Um, Emily, we wanted you on the show because you are a rock star agent, and um, and you're also very Portland centric. Um, where do you live? Your office is the is the Lloyd Center area, kind of downtown area, and and you live close to that area as well. I do. Yeah. So our office is on 19th and Irving. Um, so yeah, just basically straight up from Lloyd Center. Uh, and I live off of 7th and Fremont. Um, okay. Right in Very close in. Very close. Right. Yeah. yeah. Five minutes so, from the office. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Joe and me and even Tucker for that matter. I mean, we're, we're in Lake Oswego. Most of my business is the birds. I mean, I do a little Southwest Portland and, and I'll do stuff there, you know, a couple times a year, but, but most of my stuff's Twalton, Lake Oswego, Westland. 
Mm-hmm. And so we, part of our conversation today that we'll get to eventually, we, want, we don't have to go into it right now, is just this, you know, what's going on with Portland and some of the chaos that's been happening and what you're seeing with regards to people moving in or out of the city. And I, we'd love to get your input on that. But yeah. before we get into that, just tell us about yourself, Emily. Where, where, when did you get into real estate? What did you do before yeah. Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I got my real estate license when I was 22, so there wasn't much before. Um, I waited tables for a little while, took some college classes, you know, standard 22 year old stuff. Um, but yeah, three I got- years ago is basically three years yeah. ago. Yeah. Three years. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're new to the business. I'm kidding. Mm, you're good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, in two thousand. on the show. I've, <laughs> I've been at it 20 years. Um, so almost half my life at some point, wow. it's going wow. to be more than half my life. Um, but yeah, so been doing it a long time. I had a pager when I got into real estate. That's how long ago it was. Um, my first principal broker told me not to put too much effort into learning how to use the internet. Cause it was just a fad. Um, so that's, that's how long ago it was. It's like the end of the MLS books and the beginning oh, of wow. MLS online. Um, yeah, they had transitioned to online, I think only maybe three years before that or something. So um, anyway, so yeah, that's that's kind of my background. I started with a really small company that uh, doesn't exist anymore um, and actually it stayed there until it became a Windermere office. And then I was with Windermere. Um, we uh, had a contract with Housing and Urban Development. So we did listings for HUD for several years, um, which is all quantity. <laughs> Not not quality, it's all quantity. Um, but I learned a ton because I was in charge of doing all the broker price opinions for every listing we got. So I've done probably 300 BPOs um, for REOs, you know, across from Longview, Washington, all the way down to Salem. Um, so a lot of experience in market analysis. Um, and even though not all of that was, you know, right in the area that I was working in for my personal business, I learned a ton from doing all those BPOs. Um, and then moved to Keller Williams in 2014 and uh, tripled my business the first year I was there. Um, and it's just been going up ever since. I started a small team, um, which is a new endeavor for me. So I've had my team for about three years now, um, but was solo agent, you know, before that doing doing everything myself. <laughs> and let me tell you, having a transaction coordinator is like a gift. <laughs> mm-hmm. God. I'm like, Oh, this is the best thing that's ever, that's ever happened to me. I've never, never been a good paperwork person. So uh, yeah, having some leverage there has really helped me expand it even more. So it's been a good last couple of years. Um, you know, we've been selling about 80 houses a year on the team. Most of those sales are mine just cause I have a lot of the experience, but um, you know, we're, we're, this year has been busier than ever randomly, uh, unexpectedly. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. And I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on that too. And if that's happening to everybody, um, but we're, we're tracking to sell a hundred houses this year. So we're doing pretty good. Yeah, that's awesome. And just to clarify, Emily, when you started at 22 years of age, which is very young, um, you did not start on a team. You went solo from day one. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. That, and, and, and that's, I mean, that's more challenging than, than, I mean, I, I can't understate, you know, when you're meeting with strangers and saying, Hey, trust me with your most prized possession, your most expensive possession at 22 years of age, looking like a young kid, if you will. I mean, that is, that is challenging. I, I, I have tremendous respect for people that can do that. Um, Cause it's very yeah. different. 
It was, it was kind of a rough start. I was really gung ho my first year. So I sold 20 houses my first year in real estate. Um, but it was, I had people kind of teed up who were just waiting for me to get licensed, who were willing to use me as, as their buyer's agents. But I, I flubbed my first listing appointment so hard. I told them that they should go ahead and go get an ad in the Oregonian for their open house. I was like, yeah, you guys should totally do that. So, you know, <laughs> those kinds of rookie mistakes, uh, I have made them all, I feel like. Uh, so, but it was it, it, trial and error, which is probably, you know, <laughs> why it took so long to even get to the point I'm at now. But um, yes, it was a very, a very tough learning curve. And, you know, I feel like also back then, um, Agents were a little, I, well, maybe not, but it, it felt like at least in my office, they were more competitive and less willing to help a new agent. Um, like I remember walking around the office with an offer, that, you know, like, can somebody help me fill this out? And it was hard to get, to get someone to help me. I had, my principal broker would help, um, but it was hard to get help from other agents. And I feel like now um, agents across the board are willing to share their trade secrets, they're willing to share how they do business, they're willing to share help, um, you know, again, KW promotes that culture anyway, I'm, and I'm sure, you know, PPG is the same way where everybody just helps each other. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, I felt like a lot of it was trial and error for those first five years, <laughs> mostly error. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, love it. How many people are on your team today? Uh, so I have my transaction coordinator and then I have uh, three buyers agents and a showing assistant. Mm -hmm. um, and there uh, I have a buyer's agent who uh, kind of specializes in Vancouver, which is good because I don't, I don't do a ton of business in Washington. Um, and I like the fact that we're a little bit spread out geographically because I, I'm a total expert in my East side square, like Northeast, Southeast, North Portland, totally handled you. If you, got me to Tualatin, I would probably refer it to you because I, I can't pretend to be the, I can't pretend to be the expert in, you know, some of the suburbs. I'm so. the exact opposite, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> I know this area well, but when you get me into those inner, inner neighborhoods, people will throw out names and little, you know, those, you know, Fremont and all this stuff. And I'll, I'll just be, you know, I'll, I'll pretend I know what they're talking about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, and uh, does your, I got a question you, for Steve real quick. Go ahead. So like you went three years ago, you said you started a team. I mean, obviously that was a good choice. What, um, what do you think was holding you back from making that jump earlier? Um, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, yeah. So I basically, what was happening is, uh, in 2017, um, I, I just got exponentially busier. Um, I had put some things into place to kind of increase business. Um, and honestly, finally like started using a CRM at a higher level, um, which ended up dumping a bunch of stuff into my lap that then I realized I really couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Which one do you um, use, Emily? Uh, well, right now we're all using Command. That's Keller Williams proprietary software. It's awesome. It's, um, I mean, at that time I was using Follow Up Boss, which is also great. Um, I've used Brivity in the past. They're good. Um, so Command is free and it kind of has everything that all of those other ones have. So it's like, well, might as well use the, use the free one. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, but yeah, so I, I finally like I was terrible. I didn't keep a calendar until 2016. I kept everything in my head. Um, phone numbers, appointments, you know, never wrote anything down. Um, 
And uh, so, yeah, I was really working that muscle in my brain. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, when I, when I finally, you know, decided I needed at least an assistant, uh, I had to start actually systematizing everything because you have, when you, as soon as you bring someone on, you have to let them know what you're doing. Um, and it can't all just stay in my head. I got to get it out there. So, um, yeah, so that was the, the impetus for that really was just the amount of business that was starting to come my way. Um, and I am sort of such a workaholic that, and I hate letting any business slip through the cracks. So I just wanted to capture as much as I could, but I realized I just, there was no way I could do it myself. I mean, things were just falling off right and left. And I was just, you know, taking, you know, kind of what was on the surface and still felt like I was, you know, drinking from the fire hose, so to speak. So it really was just business coming at me that I was like, I got to hire people, um, which is not the way you want to hire, by the way. <laughs> you want to hire before you get to that point, because mm -hmm. then you're rushing to train people, which is also time consuming. Um, so it was, you know, it was a little bit of a bumpy start, uh, you know, went through a couple different agents before I finally kind of, you know, have settled into the team that's, uh, you know, we've been together now for, for two years. So it's, you know, it seems like it's working itself out now, but yeah, that was really the reason I just really needed help and I wanted to capture it. Yeah. It always seems like, um, if they're just two different skill sets, right? Like the skill set of being a realtor and selling and knowing your area and then being a manager of people, it's mm -hmm. kind of two different things, but you brought up a good point where, you bring people on to do stuff, you have to kind of tighten up your business. It's kind of like if you got to go get money, you got to clean up your books to show the bank, right? It's kind of the same theory. Um, and so, you know, I, there's a lot of people that probably run solopreneur type real estate businesses that are kind of shooting from the hip a little wily. Things are everywhere. So when you bring somebody on, and I'm sure Steve can attest to this, or people, you know, multiple people, you have to really tighten things up. You kind of have to have a systematize, you know, system for everything because otherwise you hire people and they have no idea what they're doing. So it sounds like it really cleaned up your business all around. And Oh, big time. I started uh, getting coaching at that time too. So I've had the same productivity coach for over two years. He's amazing. Um, and that also really helped just like kind of you're putting the steps in front of me, like now you do this next, you're going to have to do this. Um, and then also just like showing me where to find the resources, um, you know, to help grow the team without me having to do everything. So, you know, being able to send them out to training and, and, you know, go here and learn this and, you know, the KW is really good that way. And I think a lot of the brokerages now are focusing more on training. Um, which when I started, there was like zero focus on training. It was just like, here's your license and, you know, here's a pager, have fun, you know? <laughs> so, you know, now with all the training that's available, um, you know, it's, it's easier to form a team because you can't, you can, um, you know, kind of offset your time a little bit by, you know, having people get trained a little, at least a little bit elsewhere first. So that, that was mm -hmm. helpful. The power of leverage is just amazing. Um, you know, the, the progression of leverage as when you're growing a team kind of you, you kind of touched on it. It starts usually with a TC, right? So first, first of all, as an agent that's doing well, you're, you're busy, like you're, you're meeting with a client. I'll just touch on buyers. Okay. Cause that's usually where the most time is spent. You meet with a client, you consult with them, you go to showings, you then write your offer, you then follow it through to closing, right? That's, that's a solo agent. The progression then becomes, okay, you get your, your TC. Now you've leveraged 
um, okay, you're still meeting with the client, you're still going to the showings, but when it's time to write an offer, you've got somebody helping you with the paperwork and probably babying some stuff, a lot of stuff, like ordering inspections, you know, following stuff through through to closing. So now, now you can do twice as much, right? Because you've got that person. The next progression is suddenly, okay, I'll meet with the client and do the consultant, but I'm gonna have a buyer's agent who's gonna also work with that TC and they're gonna do, do maybe some or all of the showings, right? The inf and, and at that point you can do three times as much, right? The ultimate leverage, and this and, and it took me a few years to get to this point, is when you don't even know that client exists, right? I mean, I have transactions here and now today. Um, I, I should be careful saying this because this goes on, <laughs> but I, I barely know the names of the clients. Now, to be fair, we do have a system where you know I'm on group texts and I'm saying congratulations and you know, and I'm, 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 I have a team that's helping me man my emails and they're doing reply all the appraisals and yippee, you know, we're almost there now. So it feels to the client like I'm heavily involved, but I'm really not. And, um, and that is the ultimate leverage. Cause if you're leveraged that way, you're almost infinitely leveraged. You can almost do an infinite amount of business within reason because you, your little effort and your, what you have to do as the team leader is, is almost nothing for each transaction. So it is a powerful thing in our business when, when it's done correctly. Like Tucker said, I mean, it's got organization, the devil's in the details, the system, the training, the, the, the tools, the, the processes. Um, and if it's not done right, you almost have, it's almost worse because people are just bumping into each other and, and, and miscommunicating. So. Yeah. I think a lot of people just uh, have fear of, sorry, Joe, but like not letting go. And um, obviously the investment in people, right? Like those are the two, like, things that people box themselves in from growth, whether it be as an agent or just an entrepreneur in general. So it's cool to see that you kind of powered through those things. And now you're on the other side and you're like, God, I should have done that sooner. You know, I'm, I'm happy that I did. If anything, I should have, I should have done it sooner. And I also like having a, um, a, a coach who was holding me accountable also and pointing out that, um, I always think of myself as being like really easygoing. I'm, you know, go with the flow. I'm easy to talk to. I, you know, feel like I'm a good boss, you know. And so in growing my team, I, you know, you know, felt very kind of loose about it. And uh, and then I realized in the process that I'm a complete control freak. Like I, could, I have a really hard time letting certain parts of my business go. And I, w I had to confront that. And really it was just like, the fear, you know, I just, if I hand this off, they're not going to do, uh, you know, as good of a job as I would have, the client's not going to feel as well cared for as they would if it was me. Um, and, but finally just getting over that and putting some trust in, in my people and saying, all right, you know what, you're, you're going to do great. I trust you with this client. Take, you know, take, go ahead and take off, you know? Um, but it took a lot for me to get to that point. And I, I wasn't even really aware of it. Uh, until I started growing my team, how like, again, like how kind of controlling over my business I was and like letting certain pieces go is still difficult for me. So I'm like slowly getting rid of things. And yes, of course it opens my time up to do a lot more business. So. Yeah. And, it, and if done correctly, I would even so go so far as to say it's a better experience. It's a better experience for the, uh, for the person. I mean, I've used the analogy in the past. Imagine if you went into your doctor's office and you go to the front desk and he's sitting there and he goes, okay, let me check you in. Let me get you a cup of coffee. What, what in, where, give me your insurance information. Okay, let's go back into the, I mean, you, first of all, that'd be weird. Second of all, is he the best person to do that stuff? Is he really the, 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 
the, the warm, fuzzy, you know, detail-oriented person. So you can build a team where, um, where the, each person is in the right place where they should be and, and doing the best job. And so beyond the leverage, it's also the best experience. Well, and what's come out of that too is I feel like it's actually added value to to who I am to the client um, for that that exact reason, right? So now I'm the doctor, <laughs> so to speak, and and it puts me at a little bit of a you know like they're not reaching out to me with like low level stuff. They know to yeah. reach to my my transaction coordinator. Um, you know, medium level stuff, they can reach out to their buyer's agent and talk. And then, you know, when it's time to bring in the big guns, so to speak. Um, so it has also helped me with just my value proposition overall by being able to leverage all of those pieces. And then it's just about managing the client's expectation, right? Just making sure that they know, hey, these people are going to, you know, Shanti's going to reach out to you for all the paperwork stuff. James is going to reach out to you to set up showings for houses. We just manage that expectation up front. Um, and, you know, then they don't feel like they're, you know, being given the handoff either. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, ways of doing yeah. it. Joe, do you remember what you were going to say? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so chatty this uh, podcast. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, Emily, uh, what's, what's really interesting and, and I've seen this through history is that the hardest thing for uh, successful brokers to do is to bring people onto a team. And it's usually two reasons. It's A, we're all self-employed. We're all driven. We all don't want any business to slip through the cracks. Um, and we don't find the value of spending the money to have a TC and to have a marketing coordinator and to have all these people when you finally do that like in your analogy we should only be doing the doctor stuff right we're realtors uh we should do what we're licensed to do and that's get signatures on listings buyers and negotiations everything else turning door locks and all that stuff doing paperwork has to go somewhere else and i was in a seminar and, and this guy came he was from out of town and said what's the average number of listings or sales someone gets in portland and you know what's the average price and we did this whole thing and he softened everything we threw out he softened it and we determined that with that example realtors made 435 bucks an hour so why would we possibly burn all of these hours doing $20 an hour stuff when we could be out there getting signatures and doing what we do? So the fact that you recognize that fairly early is, is commendable and that's probably a pinnacle move in your career. Oh, big time. Yeah. I mean, for the first, well, basically right up until 2006 when I had my daughter and that kind of changed, you know, everything. I, I had three jobs. One of them was real estate. I was bookkeeping um, for a furniture company. I was waiting tables at night uh, and selling real estate, you know, all at the same time. So I was used to these 12 hour days. So when I shifted, of course, like right before the last recession, shifted full time into real estate, great timing. Um, you know, I was used to working those crazy days and I was used to everything being difficult. 
Um, and, and I think because of that, like all the short sales that I did and all those crazy foreclosure properties and just, you know, the way real estate was during that time, um, it felt, I mean, not natural, but I, but I wasn't afraid to do the work. And I think, you know, there were certain transactions where I think my hourly wage was, you know, $10 an hour or less, um, you know, and I did feel like a professional door opener. Um, you know, and so, uh, and then sometimes I fail at opening doors. So, you know, there you go. Classic. Um, so yeah, that leverage piece was really huge for me. And, you know, honestly, again, it was just about like, like kind of coming to the realization that I'd come to a point in my business where I couldn't handle anymore myself. And then, and, and then just honestly having such great relationships with my colleagues and going out and getting a coach and having some accountability and, um, you know, real estate agents, making the transition from a real estate agent to a business owner can be a big jump for people. And I don't think that, I, I feel like a lot of real estate agents don't see it as, they don't see themselves as business owners. Um, and they're not building something that's scalable, right? Like I, I wanna have something that I can pass down to my daughter. She has no interest in being a real estate agent, but I at least want, you know, something to, you know, I want it to continue, right? And I want it to be scalable and I want my agents to be able to grow their own little offshoots of whatever. Um, and anyway, so figuring out how to do that was not my strong point. I can negotiate till the cows come home, but like, you know, building a scalable team was not on my like list of awesome things I can do. <laughs> so it's hard, it's a lot to learn. The other, the other thing really important about the whole team concept is all of the top producers really, uh, hold close to their chest that they want to give outstanding service to their buyers and sellers. In a perfect world, we want to seem like the most overpaid people in the world because it's so easy for them and they're not running through the trenches with everything we do. They just say, oh my gosh, he sold our house. He got full price. He negotiated stuff and it closed. It was simple. He makes a lot of money for doing that. There is a point when you're trying to be the door opener, the listing person, the scheduler, your own transaction coordinator, you're gonna hit terminal velocity and your quality of service is gonna suffer and you're gonna have business fall through the cracks. This was like the toughest lesson for me to learn. I, I listen to smart people, I go to seminars, I do lots of training. This took me forever to learn to let go, let it go and delegate. <laughs> and um, anyway, the quality, your, your clients and customers are probably better off uh, because of this as well. Yeah, we just try to manage, you know, their experience from start to finish. And I feel like especially in the, in the climate we're currently in, I mean, and kind of going back to what you said too, Steve, like, you know, how many houses have you sold where you haven't, you never walked in the door? You know, never even saw the house in person. And never I, met with the client. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the gonna, ultimate leverage. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's going to happen more and more anyway. I do feel like this whole thing has sort of forced us to the next level of efficiency. Um, you know, because now it's like, well, I can't show you a house until you're pre-approved because there's a pandemic going on. Well, I can't, you know, I can't, like, you just can't spend time doing certain things where normally we would kind of be massaging people and nurturing them to go to the next, you know, step in the process. Um, where now it's, you know, it's kind of like, well, we can't, you know, we can't even do certain parts of our jobs until they're, you know, 
like more ready to go. So I feel like it's kind of helped with efficiency, you know, virtual showings, making offers, sight unseen. Well, I don't think that's actually uh, <laughs> necessarily always the best <laughs> way to do it um, with people coming in from out of state. Uh, and I mean, obviously at least getting to see the house during inspections, but um, you know, I, I think we're going to see that more and more. I think that I, I have a question for you yeah. uh, on that topic. If you're a listing agent and you get an offer uh, and you know that the buyers have not been there in person to see it, do you look at that offer differently compared to maybe another offer that was a little lower price where you know the, the buyers have walked through? Yeah, yeah. I definitely, yes, yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> There's I, ways I, to do it, but yeah, yeah. go ahead. Emily. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think too, like what I'm experiencing is multiple offer situations um, so there's always a handful of buyers to choose from who have seen the property, are working with a great, you know, buyer's agent on the other end, um, have, have kept in really great communication, um, you know, and then a lot of times those are the people also writing the highest offers, right? So uh, a lot of times in multiple offer situations, yes, that is not going to help you. I've also had agents just not tell me that their clients never saw the house, um, which, you know, I, I, I personally, I'm, I'm sort of a rule follower, believe it or not, when it comes to stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's entirely fair, you know. I wouldn't lie about that, but I don't know that I would volunteer that. <laughs> I, wanna, I mean, here's, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. I don't yeah. know that I believe that I would have to disclose that. Um, now, I would not say, hey, my client was at the house and, you know, I would never lie. But, yeah, but I I, we have written offers, um, sight unseen where, and we, in doing this, and by the way, this isn't new. We've, no, Portland has been a destination, you know, uh, a huge, you know, relocation destination for years. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we've had hundreds of Californians and beyond that have been looking to buy here and we would go FaceTime the house for them. And then we'd write an offer and then they'd get on a plane and we'd set up inspections and they do it. And all the times I've done that, and I'm being honest here, I can't think of one where they got there and go, I hate this house. It's completely different than I expected. I'm terminating. Now, could the inspections have been bad and we terminated? Sure. But, but I don't remember that happening. And, it's, and we've done it dozens and dozens of times. To your question, Joe, all else being equal, yeah. I mean, I do think there's a little more strength to the fact that somebody um toward it in person versus the 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 opposite but i i don't want to say i penalize them because i I've, I've been on both sides of that and i i, I don't want to penalize people for that but i definitely would be asking okay when are they coming how fast can they come get there and so if there's only one offer we will make it work and, and it usually does if it's a competitive situation, it probably goes as a notch against them, but there might be other notches against the other people. So, you know, it's not the defining notch. We had recently, I sold a house in Camas. This was the only time this has ever happened in my career. We sold a house in Camas where they never went to it before closing. He was from Seattle. It was when COVID first hit. We had a great 3D tour, we had a great video. The agent went and FaceTimed it. The agent FaceTimed the inspection walkthrough. We re re negotiated repairs. 
And literally the day it closed, buyer had never been to it. That was the only time that's ever happened. But we've had we've had other ones where before the offers written many times they hadn't been to it they and it. Yeah. They to it, so yeah i mean i don't know that i i agree with you 100 percent. i it's it, it is a it is a tiny notch against them and again i wouldn't rule it out if they write an amazing offer um it also and again like when i'm advising my my sellers on offers like that um it also kind of has to do with the agent who's writing it, right? Like if I got an offer from one of your buyers and I knew that you had done, you know, done the FaceTime tour and, you know, you know, the house and, and, you know, you probably pointed out to them how old the furnace is or how old, the, like you kind of have already knocked down some of the potential like things that might come up on an inspection. Um, you know, the neighborhood really well. So I, tr you know, trust that you've like, you know, explained everything about the neighborhood to buyers who haven't seen the property. I think, you know, that, that might actually factor in, 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 you know, how I would advise a seller too. Um, and that's, again, I think, I think where communication is key. And I know like we're all pretty old school, um, you know, so like getting an offer with no phone call is kind of weird to me. Yeah. <laughs> like, why doesn't the agent call me before they send yeah. an offer or when they send the offer? I, you know, so I, I might have a slightly different view of stuff like that just, you know, because I'm so used to doing it the way that I have been, but I, I, I agree with you. And I have done it once also got to from start to finish and they came afterwards and thank goodness they loved the house when they got there in person because they had already bought it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. The yeah. first time they see it is when their moving truck rolls up. I've had that happen quite a bit. And thank God every single time it worked out well. And I think with this, with COVID being the new normal, I would knock the people who haven't seen it in person. It's, it's cheap and easy to write an offer, fire it off. Hey, this popped up. It looks like a good one. It'll go fast. Give them an offer. And then if they get, you know, they can change their mind later. Uh, but what's interesting is I've gotten more requests for people saying, do you have any photos of the garage and the side of the house and like the storage that this place has in the basement and like all the yucky photos that would never make a virtual tour, but people want to know everything about this house so they can make an offer eyes wide open and these offers pretty sticky i mean it's not just some investor throwing a dart these things make it to the end zone and i'm putting a little bit more stock in people not physically being there but having enough information virtual tours videos drones walkthroughs um i'm getting to feel more comfortable with it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we're headed in that direction. So I think everybody's going to have to feel more comfortable with it <laughs> at some point. Cause I just, you know, I mean, who knows about, you know, people, a lot of people don't feel comfortable traveling at any point, you know, and they, now that people are working remotely and they can live anywhere, a lot of people are choosing Portland, especially up and down the West coast. I've got, had a lot of buyers from, you know, obviously from California, even some buyers from uh, the Seattle area or New York city or wherever else, you know, um, who can live anywhere and they're picking Portland because their job's gone 100% remote. So that'll be interesting. Let's talk about Portland. Yeah. 
<laughs> so, I mean, have you, in, seen, huh? any yeah. changes in, in recent weeks and months in, in perception from those people? Are they asking questions? Are you seeing people leaving more so than coming? I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Um, to the suburbs, is that real? <laughs> a little bit. Um, I mean, I definitely, it's, I think this is a, this is also a mindset thing. Um, I feel like the millennial buyers, you know, sort of still want to be uh, close in and, you know, walking distance, stumbling distance to a bar and walking distance to coffee or whatever. Um, you know, so I feel like some of these close in East side neighborhoods that, um, you know, have really been trending for the last, you know, five, 10 years will continue to be good markets. I don't see any kind of slowdown in that regard. Um, and there are people who are prepping for going back to work too. Like they still want to be close to downtown because they're like, well, at some point I am going to go back to work. And so I am still thinking about my commute, even though, you know, I'm working from home right now. Um, one, one big driving factor that I'm seeing are, are um, a lot of renters who like couples who are living together, both working from home, both being on the phone or Zoom calls during the day in like an 800 square foot apartment. A lot of those people, like it's starting to get hectic. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I have a feeling there's gonna be people living in smaller rentals, honestly, who are gonna need, who are looking for houses. I've had quite a few buyers that fit into that category. Um, I've also had a couple pieces of bare land that sold very quickly for full price, which was surprising. Um, you know, 10 acre parcel with a barn on it out in Gresham that I, you know, again, not the supermarket expert on vacant land in Gresham, um, priced it where I thought it, you know, was appropriate. And we had multiple offers on it, ended up closing for full price. But it was that kind of thing where somebody just, they wanted their, their dream property for you know for down the road it wasn't that they were going to move there right away but they just wanted some bare land you know for the just in case factor so i think some people are thinking about that and election years are, are already difficult i mean it's all it's that always you know makes the real estate market a little funky um i think we had a little bit of a delayed reaction <laughs> just because everything shut down in march which is typically really busy for us right and then you know, March and April, people, I had a lot of clients who were like, well, we'll wait till the pandemic's over to buy a house or, or we'll wait till it's over to sell a house. And I think by, you know, by mid-April, early May, people were like, oh, hmm, nothing's going to change anytime soon. We better just like move forward or not with our plans. Um, and that created a really busy June, July and, and August is, is stacking up nicely too, where I feel like August is normally my slow month. I don't know mm -hmm. how it's been historically for you, but August is usually kind of slow for me. Um, there's no back to school. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, there's, normally there's a distraction of back to school. I don't think we have that this year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the only downside that I think drives buyers to, you know, not want to go look at houses is the heat. It's just like if when you have these 100 degree days, nobody wants to get in and out of the car. 90% of the houses over here don't have air conditioning. So we're like, mm -hmm. do I even want to go upstairs? <laughs> no, I don't need to see the second floor. It's going to be too hot. Um, but yeah, so interestingly, it, it, I think because we did kind of have that a little bit of stall out, um, in the early spring that it's, it's actually carrying through now and people have made the decision to, to just keep going and, you know, buyers will put in offers 10% over asking in a multiple offer situation. And on the, uh, in the same conversation, they're like, well, the market's going to crash though. 
And I, you know, and I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm going to lose money if I have to sell the house in two years. So that's always an interesting conversation. I don't know if you guys are experiencing that as well. Yeah. They're worried about weird it sometimes. Crash, but then they're, yeah. they're still willing to compete at this high level. It's a weird yeah. dynamic, isn't it? Because yeah. we've seen this a number of times, Steve and, and Joe, I'm sure you have too, but usually that causes people to pump the brakes on the offers that they're submitting, not go over the handlebars and at the same time saying, I'm screwed, see ya. You know, like it's, it's, it's strange. And I, I don't know, we've been trying to figure out what, which way the market's been going all year and we've been wrong every time. So I, I don't know, it's tough to say, I don't even know. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's interesting that people willingly pay more knowing that they may have something they have to trade in at a future date where they may actually lose money on. Yeah. And that's also about the conversation, right? Like I'm like, I always ask people when they say that, well, are you going to sell your house in two years? What's the plan here? Are we on the five to 10 year plan? Are we on the, this is might be temporary, but I need something to live in now that I might have to sell really soon. Cause that may drive how, you know, obviously how I'm advising them to make offers. Um, I don't see a slowdown in the close in market coming anytime, anytime soon. We are so far from a buyer's market. I think we're at like five or six weeks of inventory over here in Northeast Portland. So um, everything is getting multiple offers. Just about. Just about yep. everything. I mean, Just yeah. about everything. Yeah. I mean, there's still the overpriced listing, right? You still, yeah. there's still that yeah. seller that's like, my house is worth $700,000. Yeah. And you're like, oh, it's worth five fifty, dollars but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> so we do still have, you know, people out there like that. I think Steve I, listed one of those in Northeast, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, and that trends in, you know. Back in the 84 is not good. <laughs> <laughs> well, but honestly, it has a lot to do with the media. Like they see stuff on the news and they, and they're like, you know, the, what they hear is that the market's really hot, right? So that's what, you know, that's what they hear. Um, and so that, you know, then, then they start, you know, thinking these pie in the sky prices. But for the most part, when, you know, when you've got a realtor who's looking at the comps and it's priced within where the, where the comps are coming in, um, yeah, they're selling. I mean, I've had a couple full price offers accepted that were kind of lucky midweek listings where they never made, made it to the weekend, you know, gets listed on a Tuesday. We tie it up by Thursday knowing that if it goes through the weekend, it'll be gone. And there probably would have been multiple offers. So we've got lucky a couple times, but I also have buyers who've been through the ringer and written, you know, eight, nine, 10 offers, which is very reminiscent of like 2016, 2017. Um, and I think we did like in hindsight, now I feel like we did have a little bit of a slowdown in 18 and 19. And then now it's like kind of ramping back up. And I know that- Busier, busier. Yeah, busier, yeah. yeah. And yeah. interest rates are driving it. That's definitely yeah. a determining. There's factor. price pressure too. There's definitely upward price pressure. Um, yeah. As opposed to just more buyer activity, um, which that's the part that has surprised me coming out of this. But yeah, no question. People are, and I'm sure you guys too, you know, Emily, I'm sure you've got some listings that maybe you put out that you priced them aggressively versus a little more conservatively um, just based on, you know, what's going on out there right now. And I, you asked me two months ago if you should be pricing things super aggressively on the list. I would have been like, no, nah, probably tone it down a little bit, get more realistic, and you'll move it. But now I'm seeing people get the numbers too. I mean, I'm seeing stuff go pending. I'm like, how in the hell did they get that in a week? Which means they got close to it, right? At least. Um, Can I tell you guys an interesting two twice this week? Two different listings. This and this is kind of an anomaly. We got over 
and, and both of them had been listed not, this wasn't the first day. We'd been listed probably about five, six days. So we listed like prior to the weekend and this is like Tuesday, Wednesday. Both went over asking price, but here's the crazy part. There's no other offer. I'm like, we're, and we're scratching our heads. The seller's going, why did they do this? One was six, this one is in Beaverton. Maybe don't um, give listed, too, too much of the details. <laughs> listed in Beaverton. And uh, I mean, we're 16,000 over asking price. We'd had other showings, but no other offers, no other talk of offers. I, the only conclusion I can uh, arrive at is that they probably got their butts kicked on a, a few times before and they're frustrated and they just want a house is, is all I can arrive at. And the other one was five grand over asking price. Same situation, been listed about five days, got a 5,000 over asking price. We're like, okay, we'll take it. <laughs> I mean, um, so it, I mean, it is, it is bananas out there, Tucker. And I, I think, um, I, I've never been this busy. I was talking to another uh, great agent uh, within PPG the other day, um, and he he was telling me he's never been this busy. Now he said something that was interesting, and I, and I kind of agree with him. He's like, my crystal ball is a little fuzzy, though. I mean, I don't know if this lasts six months or if or a year or if this is maybe just the big push to get into a house for the fall and winter when maybe there's going to be more shutdowns or maybe there's going to be a spiking of the virus. I mean. So, um, but I've been joking. I don't, I can't remember if I've said it on the podcast, but I've been joking that housing is the new toilet paper. We just can't keep it on the shelves. Um, especially in that four to 700,000 price point. That'll um, be the, uh, the tagline for this show. Just, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I had a crazy, another crazy thing happened this week. We, one of my buyer's agents, one of my um, team members was on the phone. I think it was a Zillow lead. They're in Florida, young couple. And they're like, we want to move to a liberal state. <laughs> and we're like, okay, you found the right one. <laughs> yeah. I wonder about, I wonder about things being politically driven a little bit and I don't want to get into it, but I wonder about that too. You know, if that will cause, or if it'll, if it'll equalize, you know, I mean, yeah. We all know what's going on here is very different from, you know, like the whole city's not on fire, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, so very different. And, and so I, I feel like people doing inner city moves are just doing what they're doing. You know, they're like, well, it's not right. like, there's no reason for me not to move just because there's, you know, Portland's sort of been this little trending epicenter of, uh, of, you know, in the news lately. Um, so I don't, I, but I wonder how that affects people coming from other states if they're like seeing that and thinking like, oh gosh, do I really want to move there? If, you know, if it's, yeah. if it's crazy. Um, so. I've, I've heard predictions and I don't know that they're wrong, that there will and is a, a little bit of a, a people are moving to, to areas that align politically with what they believe. Um, in other words, you know, more conservative people are probably moving to like the Texas's and the Arizona's. And whereas, you know, people that are a little bit more liberal like the West Coast. So um, I don't know that we talked about that in the recent years, but I think maybe we might see more and more of that. Um, I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, I, I know that I've heard a lot of that, you know, on the side in terms of people that are either wanting to move or move here. Um, so, I mean, I, but I think that's normal, right? I mean, people want to be in an yeah. area where they feel like they're around other, you know, lots of like-minded people, like-minded people. Yeah, like people. So yeah. I think that's a normal thing. Um, we just I heard we Idaho's have a magnifying glass. Well. 
Idaho's doing very well. They, um, they're probably, you know, and, and, and some, and things swing sometimes too far either direction. And, you know, there's probably people on the West coast who are frustrated with how, how, you know, liberal things have gotten. And they're, they're, they're kind of dialing it back, going to a place like Idaho where it's maybe a little different. Um, but it, it sounds like the suburbs, like your market where you're working, is kind of just as hectic as where I am, like close in. Like you're experiencing multiple offers on everything and things are just, so this is a whole citywide thing. It's not specific to one part of town, it sounds like. I mean, what, and I don't sell a ton of condos. So I'm like, you know, I mean, is the condo market just rocking also? Like, no. <laughs> or is it I, I, Are you market? talking about the downtown condo market? I'm any condo or, I mean, to me, I feel like I, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always, I always push people towards single family because I think it holds its value better. If they're, if they're considering one or the other, I always push them towards single family. I think, you know, again, they hold their value better. Um, but I'm wondering about like, you know, people actually wanting to own the land versus not. Um, and if the, if the condo market suffers at all because of that. Um, <clears throat> The, I, I cannot imagine. I, I haven't had a downtown listing in a, in a year or two, um, but I cannot. I did live downtown for three years in the coin tower on the 22nd floor. If I was still there, I'd probably be jumping out the window right now Yeah. because of being just stuck inside, no exterior space. It did have a, I had a deck, but that would not have, you know, through COVID and the shutdowns. And I was three blocks away from where every, all the craziness is. In fact, there was a, there was a show on, or there was a um, news article recently, the building next to the coin tower, which is the Essex house. Um, somebody was like, we are, we've been abandoned. He was just, he was, he was livid. He's like, I, I go to sleep every night in a war zone. I hear flashbangs. I hear, you know, protesting. So that, that market can't be doing good. I am. Can't Suburb condos, I do see what you're saying. People do want a little bit of exterior space, but I've the nice thing about the the the, the suburb condos is their the price point, you know, 250, 300, 350. They seem to be moving. I'm I've listed a few of those recently and, and I'm not having problems sitting on them because of that. Um I think but a lot of I, that has to do with your buyer though, right? Because like usually that's your first stop on this real <laughs> estate ownership train, right? And so you've got people coming in that you know, the alternative is 500 grand for a single family, right? Approximately four to 500, probably closer to five for anything decent. Um, so, you know, can we afford that? Maybe not. So let's start with the condo. So I think that's probably has a lot to do with it. And we're, we're still having a lot of people, you know, it's an infinitely refilling pool of buyers at the beginning of that, you know, journey of real estate ownership. So I don't think that's ever going to go away, but I do think the downtown market, there's like a, an external reason why they wouldn't buy there. Right. But I still think those buyers are in the market, obviously, which is why the, the suburb ones are, are still going pretty quick from what you're telling me. Yeah. I've got a client. I just did a consultation yesterday. We're going to, it's a listing and a buyer. He he's in Hollywood district in a condo right in the heart of Hollywood district. He's been there 15 years and he said COVID has escalated his desire to get out of there. Um, he said, you know, I've been here 15 years, so I probably was kind of getting antsy and wanting something a little bit bigger anyway. But he said everything is shut down around us. There's not, you know, the Hollywood theater is, he said, a block away. And, and you, just all the reasons that you want to be down there have kind of dried up. So he's, he's looking at the suburbs. Um, so it, there is, I am feeling a, um, movement towards the suburbs and, and probably, and, People in the suburbs, I feel, might those who aren't happy in the suburbs are maybe moving to to smaller towns outside Ouch. the city. Yeah, I agree. Rural, 
is doing great. The last few rural properties I've listed have done very well, including one that was listed for five years prior successfully by a different agent. And then we listed it and got three offers in Sherwood, 40 acres. I mean, so um, there, there is something to that people wanting more space land, you know, it's all relative, right? If you lived in a condo, having just a tiny backyard is more space. If you live somewhere with a tiny backyard, you might want to, you know, half an acre and the person with half acre might want 10 acres, but um, there is a little bit of movement towards that. There are people with the quarantine are seeking larger interior space and exterior space. And Tucker, you can answer this. it's sort of changing the floor plans of some of the new construction, like the old construction in the nineties and 2000, they would have like a den with French doors that close. And then there would be this little, you know, the parlor shoved into the kitchen, this little desk. Right. Oh yeah. And I think um, people now, if it's a, a house that's, you know, 700 or higher, there's now going to be a call for two offices in the home. And that way, spouse number one can have this one, spouse number two can have this one, they can talk as loud as they want, decorate it as loud as they want. Who knows if this thing lasts forever, uh, people might be building homes with little mini classrooms in it if (laughs) this doesn't go away. But Tucker, have you been asked that a lot about you know, two bona fide dens. Yeah, I remember when uh, it's funny because before this whole thing happened, we were looking at a big project and I walked into it and I think I made fun of it on the show. I was like, who the hell has two offices in their house? Right. And uh, so that was one of the things we were going to change about it uh, because they did this back in the early 2000s and it just made the house feel weird. Well, now I kind of look like an idiot based on what's gone on, you know, in the recent months because people actually want two offices. Now the house still hasn't sold for various other reasons, but to get to your point, Joe, yes, I've heard a lot of people say they, you know, we look at houses all the time and there's people at home on Zoom calls and they're, you know, trying to shut the door and we're trying to work around them. And so I know, you know, those people are like, God, I wish we had more space for them for us to work at home. And so we actually have a house right now that we're about to put on the market here in a couple of weeks that was a remodel. And we did it such that it's got, it could be four bedrooms and an office, or it could be three solid size bedrooms and two offices. Um, so that people can have multiple kids and they can also both work from home or they can have a bigger family and it still works. And I'll be interested to see how that does because it gives people the option of two offices, which I made fun of previous to all this, but I think that that'll be a big pull now, um, you know, based on what people are looking for because they don't know. Right. And now that they've been, they had to test their house, see if it works. Most of them check the box if it didn't work. Right. Um, you know, getting along with your spouse and managing your kids and working at the same time, it's just kind of a big challenge. So, I think people will change it. I know, Steve, you mentioned there was a, a builder that maybe you work with that's starting to put a couple offices in. Um, yeah, and I think I think the right way to do that personally is a flex space. Like the second one, not being a flex space. Because here's the other thing that I think is really, it's happening and it's going to continue. People aren't going to the gym anymore. Um, it, they've passed rules where you have to wear a mask at the gym. That's ridiculous. You can't go to the gym anyway. Yeah, I canceled my membership to Club Sport uh, a couple of days, or I put it on hold because I was like, I ain't going to the gym and wearing a mask. So yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's while I'm working can't. out anyway. Yeah. yeah, you can't, you can't. It's I mean, I can't. I shouldn't say you can't, but it's it's very difficult. So people, even if, 
a lot of us had started already and we're kind of digging the whole, okay, I've got a Peloton in a, in a room. I've got some weights in, in, you know, in that room. Um, and, and you kind of start getting in the groove of that. And we may never go back to the gym, even when it does open up, which probably will be a year before the masks are, are allowed. So, uh, you know what, if I was a builder, what I'd probably do is have the, the one true den office, like, like you mentioned, Joe, and then some kind of flex space um that has a door that can close it could be an office could be a, a weight area or gym area um definitely don't have i mean and we'd already gotten away from this but man one thing that one pet peeve i have is just the old houses with the formal living room that nobody used that right. that's so where we did a remodel steve for some okay. folks and we took that formal living room and we converted it to an office yeah and exactly. they they love it now obviously yeah. but um so that's a much better use of that space these days right yeah so yeah. i have a question actually about floor plans um so what i'm seeing a lot of here is you know a lot of people in the, over the last five years put in like basement adus um you know for airbnb because airbnb has been you know such a great way for people to earn extra income on their spaces um, so I wonder if, you know, especially ADUs that are attached to the house in some way, like in a basement space where you're actually, you know, you are sharing that space to, to a certain extent. I feel like the detached ADU for a, like a longer term rental could still be totally viable for, you know, someone buying a house with an ADU. But I've, I've seen a lot of houses come up where they, you know, they had basement ADUs built out, Airbnb, you know, is kind of dead or dying. I don't know what the future holds for that. Um, and now they're selling those properties because they're not turning the, the income on their basement Airbnbs as, as much as, and then they, can, then they can't afford the mortgage actually. So I wonder if that's gonna be a thing that will change. So many builders, especially infill um, where I'm at, um, it's a lot of Renaissance and Everett and Caliber and, um, you know, and those guys are, are, have been building with ADUs like crazy. There's always some sort of like tuck under ADU or an ADU in the back or, um, I mean. Is there a door between, interior door between? on well, the most of them? in an older house, there definitely would be. I mean, yeah. you know, you can get to your basement from up top and then yeah. with an outside entrance. I mean, I guess there's ways of making it separate. And, but I feel like the, the way they built them, they actually built them as two separate units with their mm -hmm. own interior or with their own entrance and exit and then not access necessarily from inside the house. But I've seen floor plans where there is access to the ADU portion from inside the house too. And I think it's like whether or not you're sharing laundry <laughs> might be a thing like in an older house where you have laundry in the basement and then, you know, both sides potentially are sharing it unless you've made, you know, arrangements or, you know, figured out how to move laundry upstairs. Um, so that you have two laundry areas, but I'm just curious if, if that will change how builders are designing their infill stuff. I would think so. I don't know that Airbnb's dead across the board. I think well, if you, yeah. I think if Joe, if you, if you're up at the mountain or if you're at the beach or something, I think those people are going to those Airbnbs, but sure. why would you go to inner Portland right now when all the, you know, the restaurants are closed and everybody, you know, everything's, you know, kind of that, that allure is a little bit diminished at yeah. least temporarily at least for the next year so i could see that being a thing where people are now trying to spin those into more it's part of the living space of the house that, that makes a lot of sense to me yeah i have a question about basements um and you may not know the answer but this is this is factual when i list 
a, a home in Tualatin or Lake Oswego and there's an unfinished basement, we do not put it in RMLS as part of the, the square footage. When I go into Portland, Oh yeah, they put it in there. Yeah. <laughs> and and I've never understood that, but it's a thing. And 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 you're at a disadvantage if you don't do it, rightfully so. Why? <laughs> Does yeah, anyone know? Yeah. I do, yeah. I know why. Well, why? I can tell you exactly why too, but I'll let Emily answer the question. So well Joe, I'll let Joe answer. I want to hear Joe's answer. Okay. Let's hear Joe. Okay, so a long, long time ago, we were only reporting finished square footage. Yeah. Right. Um, so the, I think it came from the real estate commissioner that it's not giving uh, the true sense of the house. So you could have a thousand square foot rectangle box, a ranch, or you could have an old Portland that has a thousand square feet finished on the main with a thousand unfinished up above and a thousand unfinished basement. That house actually has the potential of 3,000 feet, where the ranch only has 1,000 feet. So they said, if we include all of the attached square footage, um, the difference is this 1,000 square foot ranch, if you had to add 2,000 feet, it would be exponentially more money than buying the old Portland that had a 3,000 square feet, and you're just paying a smaller per foot to finish those two areas. That's the reasoning behind it. And it, I don't use price per square foot in my market analysis really it, at all. Um, I mean, unless I'm finding really like for like properties, like if something has a finished basement, then the comp has to have that too. But a lot of times, yeah, I mean, there's so many variables to market analysis that, you know, it's, it can be really tricky to try to figure out, you know, the, why that, you know, you look at something with an unfinished basement, you know, price per square foot is different than, you know, something that, I see thousand square foot houses selling for 450 that, you know, have no basement. And then the house next door has an unfinished basement also sells for 450. So you see where like the price per square foot gets, you know, mm -hmm. kind of tossed out the window when you include the total. I also feel like, and I remember when that changed, when RMLS changed it to include the, you know, the total. Um, and at the time it was really frustrating because then we had to do the deep dive to figure out, is it an unfinished basement or is it finished or is it a dirt like crawl space with a, you know, with a, you know, Dorothy in Kansas door, you know, <laughs> on the outside or like walking down this sketchy set of stairs, um, you know, cause that would all be included in the square footage all of a sudden. And so then, you know, we had to like go and kind of decipher, but it, it threw off the, the price per square foot part of the market analysis for sure. So now it's, you know, you got to just take that into consider one more thing to consider. I guess, Joe, I, I didn't understand from you. Why is it different in the suburbs though? Because in the suburbs, that same home be, you could. Would, would be, um, would be they would only count the finished square footage. And the, I will say one caveat. There aren't a lot of basements in the suburbs. So that's part of it. Is that so it, it's, it's, to, it's to get a true sense of the potential of the home. And Emily, I'm not a price per foot person. I never have been. But when I, when I mentioned price per foot, obviously if there's a thousand square foot ranch or uh, old Portland that has a thousand square foot finished, but the opportunity of 2000 more square feet to finish out, you can improve square footage already there far cheaper than adding 2000 square feet to the ranch. 
I think RMLS has done a, a great job in giving us, the listing agents, opportunity to give the fairest representation of the home. You get to see what the basement looks like. You get to see if it's dirt or concrete. You get to see all the stuff. A lot of it is dependent upon that listing agent. Um, but I think people are getting a little better at giving all the information because they realize they get higher prices and they generate more interest. So matter of fact, there was a, the, the old trainer, Ryan at RMLS gave a statistic. He left and went to a title company, but he said the average listing has about 56% filled out. But the ones that were filled out just 10% more sold 30 days faster for a lot more money, uh, full price or higher. So, and I know statistics are jaded to how you pull them up, but um, I think that's the initial reason. And it was my belief that you use the total square footage in RMLS, regardless of where you are, excluding like detached square footage, right? If, if you have a home that's 3,000 feet, finished or not, it's 3,000 feet. If you have a shop, you might include that in the comments, but you don't lump that into the total square footage. You know, Steve, it sounds like just a standard that has been set by the listing agents where you're working. You know, if, if nobody's including the basement square footage and everybody's doing it the same way across the board, no, no harm, no foul. But I do think, but yeah. you're really right. Like here, um, you know, we definitely include it. Like I said, no matter what kind of basement it is, it's always in there. And there's suburbs, it feels like there's more of a, is it living square footage? Is there heat? Is, you know, those questions. And if there isn't, you just keep it out. Um, but, but in the inner city, that's not, that goes out the window and, and those basements I've been in, the, I mean, I've seen plenty of them, but it's a really unfinished basement. It is not living square footage in any way, shape or form. It's a washer and dryer and dirt floors and low, low ceiling and there. It's right there in the total square feet. So it's, um, it is a little different. And I, and I've learned that when I go into those areas, I, I have to, I have to play by those rules or I'm going to give my seller a, a big disadvantage in that total square footage account. So it's just you know, I've, I've also learned that there's a, there's a truth in advertising that you have to have. Um, when you get some of these touched up photos and the living room looks like you can play tennis in it, but then you see it in real life and it's like a 12 by 10, um, you're only setting people up to, to be disappointed. So I try and give the fairest representation. If it needs a little love, it needs love. If it's fully remodeled, I, I try and paint that picture so there's no jaded expectations once they see it in real life. And then the other thing regarding how people work, so I use the total square footage on everything. If I consider it, I wouldn't do it for a dirt basement, I'd do it for a cement basement. But you gotta be careful what you do based on what the other brokers believe. Like I no longer put lap siding on a siding. You have, you have cedar siding and you have lap. Lap is the direction that the siding goes, right? It overlaps each other. There are people out there that think that means Louisiana Pacific, <laughs> right? So you got you to gotta realize these things that you don't know what you don't know, but there are people out there that wouldn't make offers because they saw lap siding and they're like, oh, well, we don't want to deal with Louisiana Pacific. 
And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. LP is very different. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, much different problem. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, uh, we've always listed it. Um, and to be honest, you know, you just discovered one of the nuances of the flip game, Joe. Uh, if you can buy a house that has 2,000 square feet unfinished and you can update the square footage that is finished and finish out the other 2,000 square feet, you just created a margin for yourself. And that's mm -hmm. how we make money a lot of times. Um, but we've always listed it and it also allows us to push value. One thing we determined probably about 15 in 2015 is that we used to finish all the basements in Portland. Problem is water gets in those damn basements no matter almost what you do to them. And we had a pretty foolproof system that we started doing, which really did prevent it. But we also noticed that as of about 2015 forward, if we dialed in the rest of the house, we got very close to the same price as if we finished the basement versus not. And it eliminated all of our liability and headache of these water issues in the future. So we quit finishing basements, but we list them with that additional square footage, even though it's unfinished. And uh, we'd get virtually the same price as we would if we finished the basement out. So. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Why do you think, uh, and this is, this is a, just another observation why are there basements in portland and not in the suburbs i mean there's homes that were built in the same era is it because of is it because they're so the density it was it because portland was so dense people are just accustomed to them too you know when we first started doing infill in um just kind of up in your neck of the woods emily um up off of uh 16th and fremont um just east of sabin you know the first one we sold was 2011 in there and Virtually every person that came through to look at infill at that point was like, where's the basement? I'm like, there is no basement. And they were like, well, we want a basement. Well, now nobody cares about a basement really with infill. Um, and, but then people were just so conditioned because they it looked like a, you know, Portland bungalow. We did a good job with the style, but they're just so conditioned with having a basement that they wanted one, or at least they thought they did um, yeah. for extra stuff, storage, whatever, you know. I would imagine that um, building a house with a basement 100 years ago was an, an enormous amount of work. Um, I mean, it's already expensive to build new construction with basements and which makes sense that they're not that you don't do that because I don't think you get the same value out of basement square footage. So no. building a new house with a basement kind of doesn't probably probably doesn't pencil out, um, you know, but then you think about like having no power tools <laughs> and having to dig out, you know, and I think, you know, a lot of the houses I see it has mostly to do with like cold storage, like they were never meant to be finished. Mm -hmm. They're wet they're dark, <laughs> they're cold. Um, so I think a lot of times it had more to do with what the, what the original heating system was like if they were, you know, because heat rises. So they were putting heating systems, you know, into those basement spaces. And then again, just cold storage. But I don't think most of the houses that have basements that are built 1920 or, or earlier, I don't, I don't think they were ever really meant to be finished living mm -hmm. spaces. I don't think that really happened until the fifties, but I know what you're saying. Like I've seen, you know, hundred year old houses out in the burbs that are like just on, cross you know, basis. cross space. Yeah. 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 So I totally know what you're talking about. I don't, I yeah, no yeah, I don't understand the difference. What, <laughs> yeah, what you know, we built a lot of homes in first edition in Lake Oswego, right? Same era as a lot of the older homes in Portland none of them had basements yeah. Yeah. but virtually everyone in portland that we did that was that same era all had basements so it's just you know strange nuance yeah the, the other reason for the mid-centuries the other reason is they just got through all the wars in the 40s right so you know 1950 on up it it sort of doubled as like food storage and a bunker if shit hits the fan <laughs> and, and that's what how it was explained to me it's like 
if there's a war or something's happening, go to the basement and you have food and you at least are surrounded by cement and, you know. And you might have uh, shuffleboard built right into the floor. That's right. Yeah. And a bar. You have a bar down there. and the tiki bar. What more do you want? That's right. You can just pick at the old Portland Crumbly Foundation for your sand for the shuffleboard, right? (laughs) Just pick at it and it's shuffled right down. Yeah. (laughs) It's a good question, though. Yeah. yeah I, if anyone ever has an understanding, there there has to be a reason. Maybe you know the the style or something, or I maybe a lot of them were you know Sears kit houses. So you know, there's a lot of those Sears kit houses that were built in Portland, and those were all basement style. Um, so you know, a lot of it had to do with the plans and the the house choice. Um, but you know, it also just became kind of the norm. You know, just like a lot of ADUs are norm now for a lot of infill builders, right? So. Just kind of the way it goes for sure. Maybe it had to do with um, the permitting process. Who knows? Maybe back permit, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe the city said Portland has. I mean, there was, but the birds said no. Crawl spaces are fine. That would be. That'd be water, honestly. Like you know, if you dig down too far, you know, in Lake Oswego with the you know with the lake. I don't know. I mean, I'm wondering if they just you know had a hard harder time making dry basements or semi-dry basements in certain parts of town. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's well, perplexing. Yes. We'll get to the bottom. We'll Google it after this. How about that? We'll get all the there answers. We'll post them in the show notes. So there you awesome. Go. Well, hey, we're, uh, I think somebody had a fairly hard exit at some point here. Close. Are we getting close? Or, um... Yeah. Look, we can wind it down. Anything else, Emily, that you have to say? Any final parting words of wisdom for us? Final parting words of wisdom. Yes, my crystal ball was not ready for the pandemic either. I think uh, we're all kind of playing it by ear, but I just have to say, uh, I feel like camaraderie between agents has improved greatly in the last three or four months. And so I think it's awesome that you guys are doing this and, you know, other people who are doing similar things, you know, master Zoom calls and stuff like that. Um, It's really invaluable to get, you know, the opinions of your colleagues um, and so I'm leaning on that a bunch right now. So I just, so thank you for that. Keep going. <laughs> I want to also point out to our listeners, one of the, one of the, one of the reasons Emily's on here, not the only reason, but, um, she engaged with us, uh, you know, several times we've had these live, t- unfortunately today isn't live, but she was commenting, she was adding value. And it, I mean, that's a great way to get on our show. If you'd like to get on our show, be engaged on the Facebook masters group lives. And, um, and if we, if we see value there, we're going to bring you on. Okay. So thank you, Emily. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. So yeah, I got to applaud you. You were a, you're a great interview today. So good job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good job. And good job, Steve, for finding her. She's awesome. Great. Yes. Sarita Dua next Friday, 11 AM masters better be working Facebook live. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll get on the phone with Zucks right now and say, Hey, <laughs> All right. Well, hey, good show today. We appreciate you being with us, Emily. And um, Steve, Joe, I'll see you guys again soon. Thanks again for listening to our show. And make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.